doing that. This morning, uh, we find ourselves at the end, the final threat in our sermon series, Church Under Fire, the seven greatest threats facing the church today. We've looked at the threats of ignorance, compromise, division, intellectualism, comfort, busyness, and this morning we wrap up our series with complacency. You'll note that these threats that are mentioned are not threats coming from outside the church and in, but they are threats within each and every one of our lives that affect the church and the world we live in. You can go ahead and start turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22 in a minute. If you need help finding uh, Revelation, it's the very last book in your Bible. And if you do not have a Bible, stop at the info bar, grab me after the service. We would love to gift you one. Uh, this particular text that we'll be looking at uh, comes at the end of a series of letters written to seven churches. These letters are from Jesus to these churches, and this specific letter is written to the church at Laodicea. Although it was written to them, it is also written for us today, which means that it still has application for us. I invite all of you to stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The word of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come before you this morning and we ask for help. We ask for help in understanding and applying this passage. We ask for your help to, to block out all the distractions from this last week that may interrupt our listening and paying attention to your word, your word to us. 
Father, for those who are weary and tired from an exhausting week, we pray that they will find refreshment from your word this morning. Spirit, we ask for your help in our lives as we sit under your word. We pray all of these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Our main idea this morning is that spiritual complacency is living your life as though you need nothing from God. Now you might look at this passage and you might have some difficulties with reading the whole book of Revelation, thinking I know there's some weird things going on, what's going on with the spitting out and the knocking on the doors. What is this passage even saying? In this particular passage, just like the other letters before this in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is addressing the angelic watcher and protector of the church, specifically the church in Laodicea. The historical context of this city is one of significant wealth. The city itself was known for banking, for manufacturing of clothing, for having a famous medical school with ointments for ears and eyes. They seemed to have everything put together, that this was a city that people would desire to live in. But despite its prosperity, the city had one significant weakness, the absence of adequate and convenient source of good drinking water. In my research, it was noted that this water was so vile that a visitor could come to the city and if they were unprepared, meaning they didn't bring water or they didn't know where to get good drinking water, they would drink the natural water there and it would cause them to vomit. We're all familiar with vomit, throw up, puke, whatever you want to call it. Some of you might say, yes, that was my life this morning as my child spit up all over me. In one of my many part-time jobs that I've had in my life. I was an employee at Chick-fil-A, the Lord's Chicken Shack. And I remember one day my manager came up to me and asked if I could go clean out the playground because a child had become sick. And so being the good employee that I was, I said it would be my pleasure So I gather all my cleaning supplies and I brace myself as I walk towards the playground. And if you know anything about Chick-fil-A's playgrounds, they have glass walls and a glass door to prevent the children from distracting the rest of the dining room. And as I opened the door, I was met with one of the most horrific smells I have ever smelt in my life. And... What my manager had failed to tell me is that the child had actually gotten sick at the top of the slide and the projectile went all the way down. I don't need to belabor the point that vomit is gross, it's disgusting, it's one thing for a parent to help care for a sick child, but please do not ask me to clean up after your child because other people's messes are gross. To bring this back to the text, it says that the words of the amen, 
the faithful and true witness. And who this is referring to is Jesus, that this is a letter from Jesus to the church. This description, the faithful and true witness, stands in stark contrast to the condition of the Christians of the Laodicean church. That he is reliable, and they are not. That he is faithful, they are not. That he is the true witness, and that they are bearing false witness to who they actually are. He's saying that you cannot trust yourselves, you need to listen to my words. The text also says that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, and that comes from Colossians 1, 15 and 18, in which he confirms that he is the chief or originator of both creation and the church. Not that Jesus himself was created in creation, but that he is from the beginning, that he is the amen, he is the first and the last. And because he is the originator of both creation and the church, because he is the Lord over both material and spiritual realms, that puts Jesus at a uniquely strong position to offer counsel to this church that we will want to hear. He is coming to address their self-deception that not only runs deep within this church, but also in all of us. The problem in the church of Laodicea is they are complacent. Christ comes and brings criticism against their complacency. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, or I wish you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or another way to say it is that I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, you make me sick. We don't need Bible scholars to help us recognize that lukewarmness is a less than ideal temperature. I'm assuming that none of you are asking for lukewarm coffee or tea or soup or a lukewarm shower that we recognize that the word itself, lukewarmness, sounds negative. It doesn't taste or feel good. And Jesus, in his letter, goes on to say that he wishes that the church at Laodicea was either cold or hot instead of being simply lukewarm. Many have looked at this verse and determined that Christ would like his followers either one to be hot, that is, zealous, fervent in spirit, zealously serving after God's kingdom with their whole hearts, or two, that Jesus wishes they would become cold and abandon the faith altogether, showing them that they are really just unbelievers. And I think it's helpful that we think back to the context, the historical and geographical context, to who this is being written to. That is the city of Laodicea, the church, they have all these great technological advances, yet they can't get adequate drinking water. That hot medicinal waters bubble up in a nearby city of Heropolis, 
while cold, pure water flowed from Colossae, all along the same trade route. In between, you have Laodicea. I think what Jesus is saying is that you are neither providing healing for the spiritually sick, nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. Yes, he would love the Laodicean church to be fervent in spirit, zealously serving after God's kingdom with their whole hearts. But by suggesting either cold or hot, I don't think he's asking them to just get on with it. If you're going to abandon the faith, I wish you would just do it and stop coming to church. Rather, I think he's saying is that you're worthless. You're not doing any good deeds that I have commanded you. I think we could describe this as ineffective faith, a faith that is currently not resulting in good work. And if they are not hot or cold, of course he would spit them out of his mouth. This is a warning that God does not take lukewarm Christianity or a heart that is only partially his. He does not abide with it. He does not like it. It is sickening to him. No, God demands our whole lives. And why shouldn't he? He is the God of the universe. He is the God that made your heart and my heart. He should demand our whole hearts. But more than that, he gave us his whole life in Jesus to die on the cross to take our dead hearts and to give us life. So yes, lukewarmness is bad, terrible, and Christ wants us to be wholly dedicated to him and his kingdom. He wants us to bring value, not because we bring something to the table, but that he wants to work through us. But when you ask questions, how did this church get this way? How did they become lukewarm? How did they become complacent? How did they become indifferent towards their works? Complacency will eventually lead toward ignorance concerning where we are spiritually. I think we may say one thing when the truth is altogether different. Like if you go to a carnival or the circus and you look in one of their funhouse mirrors, we look at it and it gives a distorted image of ourselves. It's not the true thing. That we may fool ourselves, we may fool others, but friends, we cannot fool God. These Christians are deceived Christians. A comparison of their self-estimation with the Lord's evaluation is a tragic and sobering thought for us. That they could not have been more off base of who they thought they were. They say, I am rich. I am wealthy. I am in need of nothing. Like their city, they boasted about who they were, what they had. They thought that every church should be like them. These Christians are claiming to have reached a very lofty place in their spiritual walk that they did it on their own, that there is no need for anyone else, that they don't need any assistance. And yet Jesus comes along with a true mirror 
a completely different perspective on the church, and he exposes their deficiencies that they can't see. Like if you're eating lunch with someone and they spill a sauce or a tomato falls out of their cheeseburger or whatever, it gets on them. You let them know. If you're with a group, you're trying not to embarrass them. You might pick up your napkin, dab your face or your shirt so that they can address what they cannot see. And Jesus comes to address them. He wants to get their attention. He wants them to clean off the mess. And he makes it clear that they claim to be one thing when the truth is actually something else. Jesus is saying, let me set the record straight. I bring a true witness to your condition. He gives them five marks of their actual spiritual status. He calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. These are not good descriptive words, and we need to ask, how, how did they get there? I mean, does one just wake up one day and they're just complacent? They're indifferent towards the things of God or God's word? No, I think they get this way because complacency is dangerous because it is so easy. All you have to do is sit back and go with the flow. To go against the flow requires work, might involve conflict. Complacency doesn't require discipline. It doesn't require accountability. It doesn't require action. And because of all that is often too appealing to us, that it's easier just to sit back and say, this is just the way I am, or this is my Enneagram type. It's just the way I was made. But friends, we cannot be complacent. We are commanded to be disciplined, to take action, to have accountability. The journey to spiritual complacency is a slow and steady descent. And if we are not on guard to it, we can also fall into it. Spiritual complacency is living your life as though you need nothing for God, nothing from God. Another way to think about that is, is being a practical atheist who just goes to church. Now, none of us, I'm fairly confident in the room, would so boldly say, yep, I don't need anything from God. I'm good. But friends, these were Christians who were satisfied with church and bored with Jesus. Their reliance was on material things. They had no physical needs as far as they were concerned. They weren't heretics or wackos. They were somewhere in a mushy middle. They neither promoted the gospel nor opposed it. They thought that perhaps the Bible had some very good ideas, but they didn't relish it. They didn't cherish the Bible. They wanted their kids to grow up to be moral, but not missional. They found some space in their very busy weekend schedule to go to church, but they didn't redesign their whole lives around the cause of the gospel. And you might think, well, that's them. That's, that's not me. 
But think with me. We, we all have medicine, medical uh, availability to us to help us get better when we're sick. We have insurance in case something happens to our house or our car or our spouse. We have retirement accounts in case we want to retire someday. I have all those things. I don't claim any of those things are bad. I think God has given us those things. And yet we can get to a posture that says getting through the day is dependent on me. That I'm the one who wakes up in the morning. I'm the one who goes to work. I work hard at my job. I make a paycheck. I come home. I bought that car. I bought that boat. I did all of these things. But I think we need to think about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. When was the last time that you prayed either of those things? If I'm honest, for me, it's been a long time. To think that when you wake up in the morning, I'm not going to face temptation today. I'm not going to have that certain sin struggle. I know that there's food in the pantry or the refrigerator, or if I'm late at getting up, I can just stop at the restaurant drive through Many of us, like these Christians, live our lives as though we don't need something from the Lord unless a bad diagnosis comes along or someone loses their job or a loved one is suffering. And then we start praying. And then we start making deals with God about our spiritual life. But apart from that, we act as though we actually need nothing from God. We may not say that, but we act like it. And while all that's going on, we are receiving all kinds of blessings from God. We don't wonder where we're going to get food from. We live our lives as though we need nothing. We live spiritually complacent because we think we are self-sufficient. We don't read our Bibles to understand or be changed by it. We simply read it to check off a list or because it's a habit we developed or because we know we'll be asked about a certain passage at our life group or a discipleship group or someone's going to say, how's your Bible reading this week? And it's much easier to say, great, I read my Bible today by reading over it really quick instead of spending time to meet with God. All of us like to feel as though we have our lives all together, that we have a plan, we have money in the bank, we know how we're going to handle the next crisis. We don't like people to see that we're struggling or we're dealing with difficulties. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What God's saying is that you want safety, you want security, you want comfort, you want good things for your children, you want to be certain about your future, good. 
Don't look for it in money or earthly treasures because that money is a leaky bucket. You can never fill it up enough to be satisfied. It is constantly emptying itself. He says, you want all those things? You can only find that in God. Perhaps we go to church, we converse with our friends, we get a little Jesus and we move on. But over time, there's no passion, there's no zeal, there's no desire to fight sin, there's no desire to serve, there's no desire to tell other people the good news of Jesus. Instead, the voice in our head says we don't need anything. The church things have become nothing more than a habit for us. The problem in Laodicea is that they were lukewarm, that they were complacent, that they were bored with Jesus. And it made Jesus sick. I think the hardest question I had to ask myself this week in preparing is, am I making Jesus sick? And friends, that's the question we all need to ask ourselves, is are we making Jesus sick with our complacency? And friends, if, if that answer is yes, I do have good news for you. Jesus says in here that he still loves them, that he has a cure for the complacency. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in the white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Friends, if Jesus is saying hard things to you this morning or any morning when you're in his good book, it's because he loves you. It's because he is not content to leave you where you are, but he wants to see you become more like him. What is the cure for complacency? Jesus says, buy from me gold, white garments, salve for your eyes, Stop pursuing wealth when what you need is spiritual wealth that only I can provide. We need spiritual wealth that comes from abiding faith in Jesus, that day after day we must renew our faith in Jesus for everything that we need. That doesn't mean every day you have to come before God and God say, God, please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross. No, Jesus did that once. He died on the cross for you once and paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. But he says, look at what I have given you because of my death on the cross and the faith I have given you. He says, be clothed with the righteousness that only I can provide you. Stop walking around blind when I have made a way for you to see your true self that you don't have to put on some image because I know how bad you are and I still love you. He is calling them to remember their union with him. Remember that I died on the cross for you. Remember that I provided for all your needs. Perhaps not all that you wanted, earthly treasures, but what you needed, a new heart, a right relationship with God. 
Friends, an honest evaluation of our life is essential for spiritual restoration. Spiritual complacency are spiritual cataracts. They shut our light of spiritual sight. They blind us when we're complacent. We're not seeing things clearly. But regularly, daily, we need to ask the Lord in prayer and by his word to show me my true spiritual condition. Reveal my spiritual blind spots and areas of sin that I am no longer seeing. And friends, I can tell you that that is a prayer that God will always answer. And you say, God, show, show me my sin, and he's going to show it to you. He will put a spotlight on it, and it may be difficult to see because we're blinded by God's holiness and we're disgusted with our own sin. But you say, Lord, help me. Help me to see myself as you see me. Jesus wants them to remember who they were and who they are now. Apart from Christ, we are guilty in sin, covered in shame, deserving of God's judgment, under the sway of the devil, enemies of God, separated from God, enslaved to sin, dead in the trespasses, transgressions. He says, this is what you were. He says, but this is who you are now by my death on the cross, by your faith in the work that I've done. He says, you are forgiven of sin, cleansed of all shame, declared righteous, victorious over the devil, adopted into God's family, reconciled to God, free from the slavery of sin and risen with eternal life. He says, don't forget what I saved you from and what I saved you to. I think so often the devil tempts us by saying, man, your relationship probably feels so far from God right now. But friends, in our relationship with God, he is not going anywhere. Once we have that union with him, we are sealed. We are forever his. Jesus then has for them a command and an invitation. He commands them to be zealous, repent. That probably doesn't surprise us that you should repent of your sins. Jesus paid for all of them, but our heart of repentance shows our desperate plea for our love for God in recognizing that we didn't deserve salvation, and yet he gave it to us anyways. If you don't want to be Jesus' vomit, be zealous for him. I think one of the worst places a church can go is nowhere. You just kind of exist. You don't do anything. If you aren't actually moving, I think you're actually falling back. Hebrews 2, 1 urges us, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to pay much closer attention to what we know to be true, so that we can live accordingly and not be in a complacent drift. I'm not talking about those who have turned away from the faith, 
We believe that once Jesus has saved you, that you are always saved. But friends, you and I are works in progress. That the road to sanctification is a battle because we love the things of this world. But we know that Jesus has freed us from the shackles of sin that we don't have to give into temptation. We are commanded to watch ourselves and our doctrine closely. If we are not moving forward, we are moving backwards. And that's not just the church as a whole. This is personal. The church is not just a building. It's made up of individual people. That if our church is going to do great things for God, it starts with each of us having a personal relationship with God and zealously pursuing after him. This means you are either growing closer to Christ and maturing in his ways, or you are drifting away. This means that we cannot be complacent in our devotional life or our spiritual disciplines. That we have to work at them. I told the youth students this last week, our Christian life, there's God's work and then there's our human responsibility. If I want to know God's good book, I can't just hold it up to my head and it'll miraculously by osmosis find its way into my brain. I actually have to open it up. I actually have to read it. We have to work at our discipline for God. Not in some legalistic way, but out of a desire to know him better. We need to allow the word to change and shape our lives every single day. And we can come up with all the excuses in the world. It's a busy season. Kids are in sports, have all these activities and school projects, and there's just no time in the day. I'll be more serious and zealous about my faith after X. I'll share salvation's testimony in my own life with my coworker next month. Or I'm not a super spiritual person. My personality doesn't allow me to be zealous for God. I have difficulty reading the Bible and praying. I'm so easily distracted. So often it's always the next thing, and then I'll change. Then I'll take my faith more serious. When I'm talking about being zealous, I'm not saying you're brought to tears every time we sing a song here at church, or your hands are raised, or you're just so emotional all the time. You might think that's just not my personality. I don't think raising your hands in church makes you more spiritual than someone else. But when we get more emotional about sports games or something coming out or a new shoe dropping, then we are emotional about singing the truths of the glories of Calvary. We've got a problem. Complacent Christians are wins for the devil because they aren't doing any good. They're not telling a lost world about Jesus 
and they're not encouraging other Christians to keep striving to grow in your faith. They're just kind of existing. And Jesus says the cure is to be zealous, to make an impact, to get involved. It's Jesus' command. He also has for them an invitation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Perhaps you've heard this as an evangelistic reference for going and knocking on doors to tell people about Jesus. And I think that's one application. That's a good thing. Or perhaps it is talking about a future Jesus, then he will come and pass judgment on the church, like a police SWAT team standing outside the door saying, if you don't open the door, we are going to break open the door and come in. He's going to break down the door and cast judgment on the church. But remember that this is written to a church. Like any church, there are believers and unbelievers in the gathering. And Jesus, I think what he's saying instead is, do you want to dine with me again? Do you want to talk to me again? To have fellowship with me again? There are two theological categories, I think, in this passage. The first is union with Christ, which we've already talked about what Jesus has already done and united us with God. I think the second is communion with Christ. Our union with Christ is fixed, unalterable. It cannot be changed. Once you are a son or daughter adopted into God's family, you are always a son or daughter. And then you have communion with Christ, which can go up, and down, ebb and flow. Just like in a marriage, you are either married or you're not married. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I feel like being half married today or quarter married today. But also, like a marriage, there are ups and downs in the relationship. Feelings towards each other can go up and down, they can change. Your communion can be strong or it can also be weak. Christ wanted them first to remember their union with him, his righteousness, his truth, his light. And secondly, he's reminding them that they can have communion with him. Jesus has taken a position outside the door of the church and will remain there knocking and knocking, graciously and patiently waiting, saying, If anyone, just one person, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Because, friends, God is so patient to us. If God was anything like us, the first screw up after we became Christians, we'd be like, well, I'm done with that person. 
I think of the story after story of the Israelites in the book of Judges about how they continually turn away from God and then something bad happens and they cry out to God. God sends a savior. They return to him and then it's usually the next verse and then they went after other gods. In terms we can understand, I think Jesus is saying to them, it's been a long time since you invited me over for dinner. We haven't talked in a very long time in the word or in prayer. We can look back at the marriage illustration and think back of when Pastor Will preached on busyness, that we can wake up, get the kids ready, make breakfast, go to work, come home, eat dinner, put the kids down, turn on a movie, go to sleep, start over the next day. But if that's the extent of what your marriage looks like, we're probably going to identify that that's not a very healthy marriage. That there's no real connection between the husband and wife. That there's no real communication because time's been taken. That's the invitation that even though Jesus said, you make me sick, I would love to come over and have dinner with you. You see, Christian faithfulness is not a secret formula. God sanctifies us through his word, John 17, 17. We avoid the danger of spiritual drift by reading, hearing, meditating on, and obeying the scriptures. Friends, when the devil says that God is so far from you, you don't know what he's saying, we can remember the words of B.B. Warfield when he said, when scripture speaks, God speaks. And they say, I wish God would talk to me. I wish he'd tell me what to do. Friends, he has in his word. We avoid spiritual drift by dropping the anchor of our souls in the deep waters of God's word. He says, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to fellowship with you. The easiest way for us to do that is to open our Bibles and read it. God is not going to leave us. He says, I'm right here. I'm close to you. I've given you something better. The spirit living inside of you in my book. Each of these seven letters in chapters two and three of Revelation concludes with a promise, or here we have Christ's commitment to those who turn from a complacent life. He promises the one who overcomes, Jesus says, the one who is the victor, an overcomer, a conqueror, they will sit with him on his throne. Just as he sat down with his father on his throne when he finished the work on the cross. In doing so, Jesus said, the work is done. I've done it for you. Jesus says, if you do this, if you turn from complacency, if you repent and are zealous for me, if you have fellowship, communion, let me dine with you. He says, I know what you're really looking for. You're looking for wealth and authority. He says, I'm going to give you real wealth in real authority. He says, you're going to reign with me. Jesus says, I can give you these things, but you have to get over your complacency. 
your lack of desire for me. And I will give you the authority that you are longing for. Jesus is promising to do great things. He says, I love you. I want to give you authority. I want to do great things through you. He says, but you cannot be complacent. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on revival, observes a striking pattern throughout Christian history that a new movement of blessing never begins by a majority vote. It begins when one person or a small group of people begin to feel this burden. And they feel the burden so much that they are led to do something about it. They are zealous about it. It may be anyone. Don't think that you can't do something for God. Don't think that you can't be zealous for God. Don't think that someone else is going to come along and do it. Because Jesus offers himself to anyone. If anyone opens the door and lets me in, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will do it. I will come in. I think revival is both an individual and a church matter. I mean, it starts with the hearts of individual people and expands to the church that God deals with people one person at a time. He deals with one church at a time, like this church in Laodicea. And sometimes, like the church in Laodicea, we have everything in our lives we think we need except Jesus. God forbid that that would be true of you or me or us, that we wouldn't open the door for Jesus. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper writes about a plaque hung in his home that reads, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He's saying, you get one life. You can choose what you do with it. But why wouldn't you want to be zealous for God? Thinking that he loves you from eternity past to send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins because you and I were dead in the trespasses of our sins. We brought nothing to the table and God reached down and said, I love you. I'm going to save you. Not because of any talent, not because of any ability, not because I know you're going to do great things, but simply because I love you. Friends, God wants to do big things through us personally and through us as a church. He'll work in spite of us, but why wouldn't we want him to work through us? Vance Harvner, in his commentary on this text, I think puts all of this in 
correct perspective for us. He says the big question today is not, is God speaking? He says the really big question is, are you and I listening? Friends, let us close in prayer.